This is WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., this is News & Culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. So here's Act 3, it's on page 91. And then when I turn the page, it's page 109. And then when I turn the page again, it's page 95. And the, the whole book continues like this. This is Lucia Brown. Right now, she's a first year student at Princeton University. But in the clip you just heard, she's a rather stressed high school senior in 2020 in Columbia, South Carolina. So I opened up my copy of The Tempest at 1.30 to try and get in half of it before my 8 a.m. AP Lit class, and every single page was out of order. Page 63, page 81, page 67. It was a misprint, a particularly gnarly and upsetting misprint, but a misprint nonetheless. Someone or something had made an error at the presses, creating this odd and uncomfortable version of The Tempest, in which every page was out of order. It looked like a book, it felt like a book, it seemed like a book, but it could not be read. Did you try to read it? Did you, like, go around page by page, like, scrounging for the correct order? Definitely. I definitely was trying to read it because I wanted to and kind of needed to for class. But I didn't realize at first, I was just really confused at how disjointed it all was. I was like, wait, this is not the character that was just talking. Like, how are we in a different scene? This can't be real. And then I looked at the page numbers and it's never happened to me with anything else ever before. So I was really confused. So for example, one could start on page 61 and end up where? Page 97. Reading The Tempest, already difficult due to its Shakespearean language, became an impossible Kafka-esque exercise for Lucia. It was kind of like a worse version of a choose-your-own-adventure. Just when you thought you were understanding what was going on, you had to turn the page, and you didn't get a choice of where you were going next. What happens when we make mistakes? Are they innocuous? Are we late to lunch with our mothers? Do we momentarily upset a friend? Or do we trap ourselves in boxes? Lose ourselves on tempestuous islands of monsters and magic, where every page turn brings new catastrophe? Why do we care about mistakes? And should we? The mistake that ruined Lucia's copy of The Tempest got rectified, eventually. Yeah, they sent me a new copy of The Tempest after I expressed dismay (laughs) over the fact that it was all out of order. But it was kind of a panicked, kind of a panicked email where I had to be like, Dear Dr. Hall, I am so sorry. I swear I'm not making this up, but I couldn't do the readings because my entire copy was out of order. The good news was some people in my class hadn't even gotten their copies in the mail. So a lot of people didn't do the reading that day. But maybe it was a mistake that brought more meaning to a reading than the real version of The Tempest ever could have. I would say that the out of order Tempest took a little more energy to read. It was a little more difficult to jump from thought to thought, scene to scene, um, but it certainly was a tempest of its own. One of my friends in that class said, quote, I don't think I've ever disliked a piece of literature more than The Tempest, and he was reading it in order. Today on News & Culture, we talk about mistakes. Happy accidents, slightly singed limbs, books printed out of order. But also the effects, the fallouts of our errors, 
and the ways we've learned to cope and to solve our gaffes. It might be an episode about mistakes, but we're sure you'll find listening to be an intentional use of your time. Stick around. We'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know about the Attic Youth Center. The Attic Youth Center is Philadelphia's only organization exclusively dedicated to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning LGBTQ youth, and has served over 10,000 individuals in nearly 30 years of existence. Their mission is to create opportunities for youth to develop into healthy, independent, civic-minded adults within a safe, supportive community, and to promote the acceptance of LGBTQ youth in society. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit atticyouthcenter.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next on News & Culture, reporters Clara McWeeny and Izzy Jacobson talk to their friend Jacob, a self-proclaimed happy accident. Happy accident. Miracle child. Surprise. These are just a few of the titles attributed to unplanned children. Mistakes, some might say. Today, WPRB sits down with Jacob Santelli, college freshman, native New Yorker, self-proclaimed contrarian, and yes, a mistake child. I'm 19, I'm from New York City, born in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I have two parents, a mother and a father, um, John and Jennifer, not in that order. Um, and then I have a brother, Isaac. In the Santelli-Hirsch family, age gaps are prevalent, just not where you might think. Uh, funnily enough, my dad is 15 years older than my mom. Uh, they met when he was 40 and she was 25. And uh, then they had my brother when I believe my mom was uh, 33-ish. Uh, and he's four years older than I am. For Jacob, there wasn't some true moment of revelation. The knowledge of his happy accident status has been a fairly constant present in his life. Your parents tell you when you're younger that they use to explain away certain things that you only think critically about when you're a little bit older. So over my gap year, I had a lot of time to think and I realized that when my parents told me that I was a happy mistake, <laughs> that clearly meant that I was unplanned. And I just got to thinking about how, you know, they probably like bought a crib and, you know, picked out things for my brother and, um, you know, probably budgeted for my brother a little bit. Um, and then I just, I popped out accidentally and how that was probably difficult for two young professionals. But it wasn't until last year that he fully understood the implications of the term. I don't have very many memories, period, as a result of doing too many drugs in high school. However, I do at some point know that I was told, probably when I was in middle school or high school, by my mom, and I don't think that it affected deeply my sense of self. However, I do think it has contributed to my idea of myself as a problem maker um, and is maybe anomalous a little bit. Still, Jacob's day-to-day -day has not been altered much by this realization. It's representative of the role that I see myself in rather than something that's affected me deeply and every day. For Jacob, this role is that of the contrarian, constantly arguing, questioning, and generally going against the status quo. But Jacob does not attribute this portion of his identity to his mistakeness. Instead, finding out he was a mistake simply reaffirmed his antagonism. 
Still, this side of Jacob has served to inform his attitude towards some situations throughout his life, particularly when he has been perceived as unwanted. Just in various situations in my life, I've, I've been acutely aware that some, some may perceive me as mistakenly being there. And I think I've always tried to prove that my being anywhere isn't a mistake, that I was, that I'm there because of my own merit. At this point in the interview, Jacob pivots to address a more specific kind of mistake, though still one that holds relevance to him. So I, I was at a debate tournament over spring break. And when you're up there and you're, you're giving a speech, you spend the entire time trying to be perfect, to make no mistakes, no oral errors. And the more you focus on that, the more likely it is that you're going to make one. So I've recently realized that if I place myself entirely in the moment and don't think about potential mistakes, I'm much less likely to make them. Jacob, in his day-to-day, -day, but also on a larger existential scale, is constantly faced with this notion of a mistake. To him, though, this isn't always a negative. After all, where would he be without one? For WPRB, this has been Izzy Jacobson and Clara McQueenie. Coming up on News & Culture, reporters Alan Ploft and Ashley Lunkwitz learn more about the errors in eviction law implementation in the New Jersey court system. And when the landlord's attorney saw me, he, he and I, I raised the issue and the judge looks at him and he goes, uh, well, I don't contest it. She said, so are you voluntarily? No, I just don't contest it. He knew he did not have a right to evict that tenant. He knew it, but he was going to do it anyway if I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. This is just one of many stories of the incorrect dismissals and inconsistencies and in implementation of new landlord-tenant reform in New Jersey eviction proceedings. WPRB set out to learn more about the mistakes of New Jersey courts, why they occur, and how they have impacted New Jersey residents during the pandemic. And since July of 2021, 41,000 eviction cases have been what they euphemistically call resolved. So out of those 41,000, how many of them were dismissed? Oh, we don't know. And how many of them were legitimate evictions, not based on non-payment, but based on other good cause that the landlord was able to prove? We don't know. Probably very few. We first spoke with Professor Diane Smith of Seton Hall Law School, who you just heard, and Professor Ann Malgrave of Rutgers Law School, Camden. And they're the authors of a report of observations on implementation of landlord-tenant reform in New Jersey. For WPRB News and Culture, this is Alan Potts and Ashley Olinkowitz. Through our conversations with tenants advocates around the state, we realized that the implementation of both the law that we'll talk about more specifically and court reform didn't appear to be being exercised consistently around the state. That's Professor Smith talking about statute NJSA 52 colon 27D hyphen 287.9. As was said at the time, it was intended to prevent what everyone, not just in New Jersey, but throughout the country, predicted would be a housing crisis, a tsunami of evictions. And that's Professor Malgrave. Specifically, 
The statute was meant to extend protection to tenants. The statute lays out just explaining it in simple, broad terms that for any eviction action that was based on non-payment of rent between March 21st, 2020 and August 31st, 2021, that if the tenant's uh, household income fell within what's referred to as 120% of the area median income, that they could not be evicted on that basis. This statute is just one of many reforms that New Jersey undertook during the pandemic. The court did a total overhaul of, of eviction court and um, totally reformed the process. Uh, and also we have the, the legislation that offers additional protections. The governors uh, extended the moratorium against evictions farther, much farther than the federal government did. And our uh, Department of Community Affairs, which is responsible for getting rental assistance out, is the is first in the nation in getting that rental assistance out the door. Now, this is pretty significant reform. In fact, it's practically unprecedented. Matt Malechko, a student researcher at Princeton's Eviction Lab, has more. Arguably, we haven't seen government intervention to prevent an eviction crisis like this since, say, the 1940s. So it's been a really long time that courts have had to operate in this way. And that's true of New Jersey and nationally. Michael Mern, a New Jersey attorney who specializes in evictions, offers a similar perspective, especially when it comes to additional case management conferences that now take place before every eviction hearing. Everything was working fine from, for 70 years. Uh, keep in mind, the Summer Dispens Act, Act went into effect back in 1951. For, se for 70 years, there were no problems with the way things were working. And then the... Uh, and then in 1974, residential tenants became protected by the Anti-Eviction Act. And, uh, and so we, we had really almost 48 years of, uh, of, of residential tenants being protected by the Anti-Eviction Act where there were, no, there were really no problems. But for tenants and housing advocates like Professor Smith and Professor Malgrave, there were problems abound in the eviction process. Essentially, court systems that have been in place for a very long time were forced to change in a very short amount of time. And so to some extent, there will probably be glitches in something like that happening. And it's important that we have systems in place to catch those so that people aren't falling through the cracks. And it seems like in, in several instances that were pointed out in this report, that didn't happen. Advocates want to make sure that changes to the eviction system are being appropriately implemented. We had law students interview tenants advocates, look at court dockets, et cetera, to find out how these two things, the law reform and the statute were being implemented. And we found we, that there were issues that of inconsistency and application of the law for eviction prevention, inconsistencies in the application of the judicial reforms, problems with access to justice in a virtual environment, all landlord tenant proceedings are done virtually and that there were issues with transparency and also with equity impact. What was the impact of the reforms and the inconsistency on vulnerable populations? In addition to lack of transparency, there are obstacles of internet inaccessibility for tenants. And so we've seen senior citizens who just don't have the bandwidth to be able to do it. Um, but then, you, you know, you might even see people for whom English is a second language who might have difficulty with it, even though DCA has made it available in many different languages. Um, or, you know, frankly, people who just, they don't have a laptop, they don't have an iPad, they don't have a desktop, they have their cell phone. 
And so um, it can be challenging to go through that process if all you have is your cell phone. While it doesn't seem like Mern agrees with Professor Malgrave on much, Mern sees other downsides to Zoom as well. In general, I just think a lot of the uh, a lot of the impact of the uh, what what is going on is is lost by doing by Zoom. One judge told me that he believes that if if the uh, trials were conducted in person, like they used to be, tenants would take it a lot more seriously. Uh, not just tenants, but parties in general are not taking it seriously because. As far as they're concerned, it's not like they're actually in court. And a lack of legal representation. Mm-hmm. So the, if, if you rob the bank, you have a right to counsel because there's a right to counsel in criminal proceedings. There's a right to counsel in certain other proceedings. There is no right to counsel in eviction court. Um, although it, it truly is a fundamental right and, and there has been uh, talk and, and lots of work around that area because we know that counsel makes an incredible difference. People who have an attorney standing by their side, as opposed to no attorney or just having received advice, but an attorney standing by their side are five times more likely to stay in their home. Counsel is very important. The state's doing a little bit of work. They have a pilot program on access to counsel Mm -hmm. uh, in, in three municipalities. Counsel is really important. Accessibility of counsel still is a huge issue. Only uh, 2% 2% of tenants, in the last court statistics, 2% of tenants were represented by attorneys. Mm-hmm. 85% of landlords were represented by attorneys. Um, so, so attorneys are very important and uh, that in New Jersey, there is not a right to counsel for housing. There are in some other places, but not in New Jersey, not yet. And considering how inaccessible the court process can be sometimes, a little representation can go a long way. Just sending something saying, yeah, you're not going to get dismissed. Go file for rental assistance. They sent it in English. This person didn't understand the notice at all, had no idea. I did what I was supposed to do. And it took the intervention of an attorney. And, and But as we say, only 2% of the, the tenants, maybe a little bit more now, have attorneys if if he if we hadn't seen him at one of our outreach events, that's where we we met him. He would have been evicted. But perhaps the most pressing issue is the mistakes of the courts in their inconsistent application of the statute. Well, New Jersey is is New Jersey. We have twenty one counties, each of which operate extraordinarily independently. We have five hundred and thirty six municipalities who operate independently. Although we have a statewide court system, there are vicinages which are either one county or a few counties together, and they they're called a vicinage. And there's a an assignment judge that that runs that vicinage, and then within that are all their staff and all their judges. And each of those people. F- figure they get trained and what have you, but they all have a little bit of a different idea of what that all means. Um, and so there is, there hasn't been anything from the state that says, this is what it means. This is, there were on reforms. They said, this is what you need to do. Um, but they're looking at a system that's been in existence for about 50 years operating one way. Um, and, and so some it's, Change is hard for people, uh, and some people are better at it. Some managers are better at it than others. And sometimes we see inconsistencies in courtrooms within the same vicinage, mm-hmm. uh, and other times we don't. Some of the vicinages have been doing pretty well, and, and others, they need some work. 
Aspects of new proceedings opened up more room for errors and inconsistencies in implementation across New Jersey. But again, what you saw was inconsistency among um, county by county as to whether or not the landlord-tenant specialists were doing that. Part of it is based the training that they get, but also the um, court administrators and what they're having their court staff do. Court administrators play a much bigger role, so implementation can fall on folks who it hasn't fallen on before. One of the things that's also really important to mention about that law that was signed um, in August of 2021 is that it does really seem to call for administrative dismissals. And so a lot of places are just administratively dismissing. Um, They're looking at the certification and does it allege what it needs to allege? You really don't need a judge. That's Allison Nolan, who runs the tenancy program at Volunteer Lawyers for Justice, one of the advocates involved in the case. So the problem is not, per se, with the statute itself. We look at this, the statute and think it's pretty clear <laughs> um, what's supposed to happen. You know, and our understanding is the judges had been trained on the new law. But, you know, I know that one of my, my colleague was before a judge a couple weeks ago who was referring to an executive order that Judge Murphy had entered and was basing his decision on that, which said that tenants were protected up until August 31st. And, but we have the statute out here that governs now. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, I think it's hard to say where the origin of the confusion was coming from, because as I said, for us and those of us who represent tenants, the statute's really clear. The ways that the courts deal with acknowledging these errors and reinstation also varies in consistency. If the court makes a mistake and, and these things happen every now and then, they'll inadvertently dismiss a case where there's rents owed from outside the cover period. Uh, if you notify the court that they made a mistake that it should, should have been dismissed, they'll reinstate it. But now, Mern has seen this new understanding when it comes to errors not be reflected in some counties. I saw what happened in Bergen County to me once where the court dismissed a case where there were pre-pandemic rents owed. There were rents owed from January and February of 2020, and uh, the court dismissed the case, not realizing that. And I, I point, brought it out to the court's attention, and they said file a motion to get the case reinstated. So I had no choice but to file a motion. You know, what am I going to tell them that uh, I should file a motion to uh, uh, reinstate a case because they, the court made a mistake, which, which I put my certification. So what can be done about these errors in implementation? For one group of tenant advocates, it involved filing an amicus brief. There's an appeal pending right now um, at the appellate division. A number of us are amici on that brief, I mean, friend of the court, and that's going to be argued at the end of May. One of the things that this case illustrates is that there were a lot of mistakes made in this case in terms of how the case was dealt with, how the case made its way through the court system. And it's a lot of the things that we do see on a regular basis, the high volume of cases. Challenges continue to bog down courts. But also part of it I think also is is the volume. Um, so there's 47,000 eviction cases pending as of the end of January. Nolan helps us understand what some of the recourse is for tenants here. My organization did sign on to that amicus brief. Lowenstein Sandler took the lead in drafting all of that and really representing the coalition for the purpose of this amicus. For Robert Gutman, another New Jersey lawyer, there's another perspective. I can tell you that this is a difficult situation for the courts. Uh, you know, understaffed, handling tens of thousands of backlogged uh, eviction matters. Um, you know, th- th- this is, I believe, everybody doing the best they can under the circumstances. 
the judges, the court staff. Um, we're, we're learning as we're going along, and I think we're doing the best we can. The backlog of cases is clearly evident to lawyers like Mern as well. Courts are so severely backed up now. Certain counties, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pinpoint Burlington County, which is an incredible county. They are so caught up. They are currently uh, scheduling cases that I just filed a couple months ago. Then you go to another place like Ocean County, they're hearing cases I filed a year ago. We see other impacts of the pandemic, too. Tenants are clearly affected by their inability to pay rent after losing employment during the pandemic and then suing eviction. But what about the landlords? How are they being affected? Landlords are not left with no recourse. Mm -hmm. um, under this law, landlords can, they can refile for 2022 if, if there's rent owed for 2022. And they can also file a complaint in the law division or the special civil part for money damages, because one thing that many people don't understand is that in eviction court, the only thing the landlord gets is possession of the property. They don't get any money. So they were never going to get money in eviction court. Um, so they, they still have that remedy. And the rental assistance payments go directly to the landlord. 500, more than $500 million has gone to residential landlords to help make them whole. There are other ways landlords have adapted as well, as we hear from Matt from the eviction lab. We also know that given uh, reports from, say, J.P. Morgan, that landlords, generally speaking, were able to stay afloat during the pandemic. They did lose rental revenues, but in many cases, landlords cut back on maintenance costs that allowed them to uh, break even or even uh, in some cases have even, uh, you know, slightly better financial positions. Now, I'm not implying that there are no landlords that suffered and struggled through the pandemic. I'm sure that was the case. But then it, that's also another reason in which rental assistance benefits all parties. It helps the renter stay stably housed. It helps the landlord make mortgage payments. So it all comes back to the reforms. One judge did have a different take on it because that's the case that's up on appeal. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that was an error. There were a number of errors in that case, um, but that was one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, the language is clear. But not everyone agrees that these are errors in administration. For one, the director of communication for the NJ courts issued a statement saying, courts conducted repeated mandatory training for all civil judges on landlord-tenant matters. Judicial decisions are not one size fits all. Judges are constitutionally required to make an independent assessment in each particular matter based on the facts presented to them. Mern offers one example of how judges use the statute differently. I know some judges will take the position that, uh, that rents that became due, even if the tenant doesn't file DCA certification, that rents that became due between March of 2020 and August of 2021 the tenant can't be evicted for those rents, even if the tenant doesn't file one of those DCA certifications. And other judges have not taken that position. Regardless, people are falling through the cracks. People are getting evicted who should not be evicted. We here at WPRV are certainly waiting to hear the decision from the court on the appeal, likely in the end of June. But one thing is for sure, at least some of the landlord tenant reforms in New Jersey are here to stay, even if their start has been rocky and filled with inconsistencies. But I think Matt really has a good final last word here. Are we going to change the status quo where one fourth of people in this country, the renters who qualify for housing assistance, get it? You know, until we really come to grips with that and figure out long term solutions for making sure that everyone in this country can be stably housed in housing they can afford, 
we're going to still be dealing with these issues. For WPRB News and Culture, this is Alan Potts and Ashley Olinkowitz. Coming up, reporters Kat Ivkovich and Charlie Nurnberger learn more about mistakes by going out into the real world and talking to people who make them every day. For the fourth anniversary of Charlie and Kat Hit the Town, we visited Princeton University, a place where mistakes are made every single day. We first stumbled upon Anna Salvatore, member of the great class of 2025, Freshman of the great Princeton class of 2025. Avid mistake maker. Avid mistake maker. Um, Anna, what would you say your biggest mistake thus far is? I should have been nicer to my siblings growing up. I was overly dismissive of them a lot of the time. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. And a lot of the time they would want to connect and I would tend to push them away and think that I was too good or that because they were closer in age, they should be the ones to hang out together, um, which ended up being the case. But I think I missed a lot of opportunities to share things with them, share memories, share my interests, and learn about them. And it's not too late now, but it just feels like I, I missed the boat a little bit. And so that makes me sad. Later on, we caught sight of a woman who looked bogged down by the weight of a big, big mistake. So we approached her to ask her what that mistake was. We are currently outside Firestone Library at Princeton, and we are asking people about their biggest mistake. So would you like to share what is your biggest mistake? Yeah, um, so my brother gave me some money to go buy him an iPhone because he had broken his, and I bought the phone, and I was on the tube back to my house, and I left the phone and the receipt on the tube, and it got taken. So I lost his phone and the money that he used to buy the phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty big one. And and what was your brother's reaction? Um, he was incredibly angry. <laughs> um, but I paid him back, so he was less angry. But I still don't think he trusts me. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it happens to the best of us. Thank you so Thank much, you so for, much sharing. for sharing. We caught sight of a young woman sitting pensively under a tree, carefully caressing the roots. and we. So, what is your biggest mistake? So last fall, I was in California with my husband, Ronnie, um, and we were throwing a gender reveal party. Um, and yeah, so I bought a bazooka, um, and I loaded it with a bunch of red dye um, because I didn't know what the gender of the baby was going to be, so I just decided to not pick pink or blue. Um, yeah, so it went off. I had all my friends there, and, you know, next thing you know, um, my backyard is burning down. Um, and my terrace that I just got my husband to build burned to the ground. So, um, yeah, that was pretty much it. That was a How's your relationship with your husband now? It's good. And how's the baby? No comment. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. We then spotted a local practitioner of Sikhism who informed us of his largest existential mistake. Uh, so yeah, I'll go down the uh, religious answer here. Uh, in Sikhism, they have this sense of, they teach you that like we all 
have this sense of I and me and that's usually our like biggest problem because it causes uh, like a lot of grief and you know like because every time you think the sense of I is there you feel like you're kind of separated from everything else uh, so that causes like over time like realizing that kind of helps to get rid of a lot of your problems it's kind of like when you're in nature right if you feel like you're part of nature it brings out a peace within you as expected some princeton students we encountered had made no mistakes one student finding no fault in the eye decided to turn his criticism outwards a long time ago my brother his name is john or his name was john decided um, one day that he really wanted, well, he, find out, he found out essentially that John means bathroom. And he was like, oh my gosh, I have to change my name immediately. And so he said, you know what, Here, uh, henceforth, my name is going to be Forrest. I was like, okay, fine. Four years later, his name is still Forrest. A young Czech man named Perel in a wh tight white polo stopped on his bicycle to confess his mistakes to WPRB. Uh, Corral, what is your biggest mistake? The biggest mistake I'm doing constantly is I'm setting very specific goals and aspirations. In some part, it's really good because then I can, you know, work towards that. But very often, I set very specific, uh, you know, images in my mind that if I don't fulfill it, I'm just incontent. And that happens very often. So make myself uh, disappointed even though I don't have to. We soon found out that not all mistakes weigh heavily on the consciences of Princeton students. So in, during junior year of high school, I was studying abroad in China. Um, and coincidentally, it was the time of coronavirus. And so uh, about six months in, we were sent home from uh, China. So that was in January 2020. And about two days after, I got really sick. And I think I might have brought COVID back to America. That's a big one. That's, that's a big one. During her walk with colleague Dean Olin, a prominent Maddie Moose shared with us the lingering effects of a prior student's mistake. This is my biggest mistake from yesterday, or maybe from the COVID pandemic times. I have been amazing at wearing my mask, you know, like all of us, but then the university decided to loosen up the mask restriction. I went into a meeting with my mask on and decided to take it off. During the meeting, I just took it off, and then the person wrote to me that night to say that they tested positive. So I think that was a mistake. That's a, that's a good one. That, well, good or bad, that's <laughs> unclear. And did you test positive? I took the test. I'm waiting on the results. Oh, okay, got it. Got it. Thank you. After this haunting remark from a maskless woman, we were reminded of the necessary dangers of journalism. Whether it's setting expectations a little too high for yourself or introducing a global pandemic to your country, everybody makes mistakes. And from Charlie and Kat, we want you to know it's okay. WPRB wants you to know, don't let your waste trash New Jersey's waters. If you leave it on the ground, chances are the rain will wash it into our streams, lakes, and the ocean. By following a few simple rules, you can help make the water you drink, swim, and fish in cleaner. Don't dump anything into storm drains. The rain carries litter and other waste through the storm drains and into our waterways, so don't litter. Follow directions for applying pesticides and fertilizers. Properly dispose of household hazardous waste, such as oil, bleach, and ammonia. And always pick up after your pet. 
Help protect the environment and our natural resources. Clean water. It's up to you, New Jersey. Sponsored by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, the New Jersey Broadcasters Association, the Montgomery Township Green Team, and this station. For more information, log on to www.cleanwaternj.org. Again, go to cleanwaternj.org for more information. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next up, reporter Alan Ploth talks about Nowruz, the Persian New Year celebration coming up just next week. This Sunday is a Persian New Year, also known as Nowruz. As an Iranian-American freshman here at Princeton University, I was unsure what celebrating Nowruz would look like away from home. So for a segment for WPRB News and Culture this week, I sat down with Shireen Razin, one of the coordinators of the informal group Iranians in New Jersey, to talk about celebrating Nowruz. But first, let's back up and think about what Nowruz actually is. So Nowruz is actually the Persian of the, the New Year's in Iran. So uh, um, the New Year's is based on like a solar calendar. And the, the exact moment of spring is when every Iranian celebrates the New Year. And it, it's different at it's, it's the moment that the sun crosses the equator, the moment of the vernal equinox. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you're an Iranian celebrating Nowruz, or anyone who celebrates Nowruz, you'll celebrate it at the same time. In fact, this year, here on the East Coast, it's at 11.33 a.m. exactly. And people do celebrate in a lot of different ways. In Iran, the Nowruz celebration is very much of a family affair. And so the moment of when they're celebrating, we call it Salatakbi. Usually it's the families that are together. In the States, because Iranians are so far flung from each other in certain areas, the sort of different people in the community have come in the habit of having a Nodus party. So it's almost like, you know, like a Christmas party where you would invite your coworkers or something and there's music and dancing and whatever food. Um, that's become a tradition here in the States. And so people, Iranians who don't know a whole lot of Iranians, will definitely look for a party to go to where they can be with their own country people and celebrate. Nonetheless, there are constants of Nauru celebrations across the world. We have a, a table setting, a sofre, that we set for um, the New Year's, the Nauru's. Uh, and it has certain elements on it. Um, and one of the elements is growing wheatgrass, um, a sabze. So seven things have to be on the table that start with the letter S, and then there are additional things on it. Samanu. Samanu is like a, not a wheat paste, it's like a pudding, but it's made with like wheat milk. And um, it takes a lot of time to make it. It's supposed to be a symbol of patience. Um, and it's a sweet, it's sweet, it's very tasty. Uh, and we have that on the table. Um, so those happen for New Year's. Some other elements on the table, and they all uh, stand for, but we have wild olives, so they're called senjed. We put garlic on, which is called seed. We have coins on the table, terspeke. We have... Um, vinegar on the table with berke, and we have a spice that we put on our like our food called somak, sumak, um, and uh, apples which are called seed. and each of them are elements of love, friendship, long life, wealth, health, things that you would want for your new year. 
I struggled to find some of the key aspects of the half scene, but a trip to a specialty store in New York City, I was able to grab at least some shirini or sweets, another item that starts with S that is often added to a half scene and added to the stomachs of my friends. There are other traditions for no ruse as well. One of the things is khunatakuni. Khunatakuni means cleaning your house. So um, a lot of Iranians try to do a really thorough, like a spring cleaning and clean the house. Um, we use that time to really clean areas that we don't. So you want to start the year fresh and clean. That's a tradition I'm sure my roommate wishes I participated in more. We had an event. It, it, it's the eve, it's the Wednesday eve before the New Year's. Traditionally, we would make a, like a bonfire or campfire and people would jump over the fire and we'd say, we say, um, there's a saying in Farsi, we say, So we tell the fire that sort of the yellow, like the, the ugliness of the dirt from last year, I give to you and you give me the cleanliness and the purity of your red fire. Well, here in New Jersey, fire safety means big fires aren't an option. This isn't always the case. And as a teenager, especially 15, 16 year old, it was a challenge to see how high of a fire you could jump through. So I remember we would make the fires really tall um, and jump through them. And, you know, my hair at the top of my forehead would be thin, like by the end of the evening. Shireen certainly gave me a lot to think about when it comes to how my family traditions will continue to be a part of my life as I enter college and move into the world. But I'm certainly excited to see what the new year brings. For WPRV News and Culture, this has been Alan Plotz. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB studios here in Picture Perfect, Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's director, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Clara McWeeny, Izzy Jacobson, Alan Plotz, Ashley Olenkowitz, Charlie Nurnberger, Kat Ivkovich, Anna Salvatore, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. Our art and social media director is Issa Escamilla. Our director emeritus and technical advisor is Oliver Wang. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Radatat. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.